Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast. The Jurassic Park podcast, where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big, dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 48, Search, recorded here on February 22nd, 2023. Thanks for joining me today. A continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E, and you can check out his incredible new album, Charlemagne, on Spotify and Bandcamp. Today's intro is from the song Sally Ride, and our outro is Maybe Days. All right, we have corrections today. It turns out most people fall asleep in only seven minutes. I can fall asleep pretty quick, too. And I like that, but if you'd have asked me what the average is, no way I would guess seven minutes. Like, if that's the average, my kids take two hours to go to sleep. And that means that there are people who are literally, by how averages work, asleep before they go to bed (laughs) to average that out. I think that's that might be probably unreliable. Also, while uh, another correction here, while I listed on my resume that I was entirely bilingual, uh, that was a mistake and I should not have done that. And apparently... Uh, Japan has one vending machine for every 40 people, which I accused someone of being a total liar about, but I was wrong. But hey, you can buy a beer and I think cigarettes out of vending machines in Japan, and you probably don't even have to tip. So like, I actually can imagine that there's probably pretty big lineups at vending machines all over the place. Dinosaur News, published in iScience Volume 25 in Issue 1 in January 2022, at the article... An exquisitely preserved in ovo theropod dinosaur embryo sheds light on avian-like pre-hatching postures. The article admits that fossilized dinosaur eggs are fairly common, but actually finding an embryo inside these eggs is remarkably rare. But this paper reports that they found one, an exceptionally preserved articulated ovoraptorid embryo inside an elongatulithid egg from the late Cretaceous Heiku formation in southern China. The authors found a fossil specimen labeled YLSNHM01266 housed at the Yinglang Stone Nature History Museum of Nanan, China. The egg would have been taken from the Heku Formation, which is known to be a fluvial deposit from the late Cretaceous. Upon investigating the embryo, the authors say the head, quote, lies ventrally to the body with the feet on either side and the back curled along the blunt pole of the egg in a posture unrecognized in non-avian dinosaur, but reminiscent of late-stage modern bird embryo. By comparing this observation to other, quote, late-stage oviraptorid embryos, suggests that these oviraptorids developed, quote, avian-like postures late in incubation, which in modern birds is related to coordinated embryonic movements associated with tucking, a behavior controlled by the central nervous system, critical for hatching success. Their observations and findings lead them to propose that such, quote, pre-hatching behavior, previously considered unique to birds, may have originated among non-avian theropods, which can be further investigated with additional discoveries by embryo fossils. So this becomes something like, the chicken or the egg situation, they believe that these oviraptorids are showing that dinosaurs were already posturing inside eggs similar to what birds do before birds were doing it. Our second news story is a paper from March 2022, about a year ago, published in the Zoological Journal of the Linnaean Society called Osteology and Phylogenetic Relationships of Ligibusaurus lianzi from the early Cretaceous of Nequin Basin, Patagonia, Argentina. And it refers a new specimen to the holotype and provides more data to further understand the sauropod. New postcranial elements were assigned to the holotype specimen, which is known from the Lohan-Kura formation. The authors have recognized several new morphological features of the pectoral and pelvic girdles and the cervical and caudal anatomy, which have helped more specifically classify the big sauropod as a non-titanosaurian somphospondylin, more derived than sauroposidin. 
This has some paleogeographical implications for the diversification and distribution of South American sophospondylans, especially in the Nequin Basin, where the sauropods are closely related to the early stages of evolution of Titanosauria. Quote, in this context, says the paper, Ligabusaurus represents one of the more complete early Cretaceous titanosauriforms and the earliest non-titanosaurian sophospondylan of South America. Now that's a good question. What the heck is a sophospondylan? So this is sort of a point in evolution where an animal either branches towards becoming more like a brachiosaurus or a titanosaurus. Animals like this are found on all the continents, apparently. Ligabusaurus lienzi was first described in 2006. It was based on an incomplete maxilla with 10 teeth, 6 cervical and dorsal vertebrae, and several associated girdle and limb bones. And at that time, it was believed to be a basal titanosaur due to the development of its relatively long forelimbs with a humerus femur ratio of 0.9. Apparently, that is important. So another drop in the bucket that helps the phylogenetic analysis machine to continue doing its good work, telling us more and more about all those, all those sauropods out there. All right, with the dinosaur news and the corrections and all that stuff out of the way, please let me introduce you to my very special guest this episode. So joining me today on, on this episode is a paleontology education and outreach coordinator for the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences, a po postdoctoral researcher for North Carolina State University, as well as an author and historian specializing on paleontology and genetics. I'm excited to introduce Dr. Elizabeth D. Jones. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Sorry. So Dr. Jones and I met uh, coming out of a movie theater where they just finished screening a double feature of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, but uh, but not Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom because I don't like that movie as much. And uh, it was just a complete coincidence that your name is Dr. Jones and the main character in those timeless films is also Dr. Jones and nobody made any tasteless jokes about that at all. Um, so thank you for joining me today. That's great because I've actually never seen any of those movies all the way through. Oh, really? <laughs> really? Not as an adult. As a, as a kid, yes, but not as an adult. So... This weekend, I'll put it on my to-do list. Okay. <laughs> you haven't seen any of the Indiana Jones. My cat is named Indiana Jones. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I love that. Um, no, I mean, I watched them when I was younger, but I I have not recently. Man, as so a I Dr. Should... Jones, that should be like right in your wheelhouse, but okay. Um, I know, I know. I'm not living up to my name at all. <laughs> I promised my wife I wasn't going to tease you about your name at all. But I'm so excited <laughs> to talk to a Dr. Jones, that's for sure. Yeah, I've considered changing it. Uh, Elizabeth Jones could easily be changed to Indiana Jones. It could be North uh, Carolina Jones. That, oh, that's right. All right, more and more ideas. I have not <laughs> thought about that one. <laughs> but like I said, my wife is going to be listening to this episode uh, under protest because I swore I wasn't going to tease you about anything. So anyhow, uh, what? You're actually that. Actually, I don't get that a lot, so it is not overused yet. Yeah, so. I'm a Mister Rogers, and I don't get Mister Rogers all the time either, and uh, that's fine. Oh. Yeah, that is funny. <laughs> <laughs> My neighborhood nice and all to that. Mr. Welcome to the neighborhood. <laughs> all right. Um, so I wanted to start off asking you about uh, the Hell Creek Formation outreach work that you do. I wanted to start off asking about uh, being a coordinator of Cretaceous creatures and and ask you specific Cretaceous carnivore questions and a very specific hadrosaur question I've got. I wanted to start off asking you about dinosaur exhibits at the North Carolina Museum of Natural History and the, how do you pronounce the SECU lab or the CQ lab? Oh, yeah. Well, that's a good question. Well, it just... State Employee Credit Union. Okay. So I think it's, I think it's CQ. 
Siku Lab. And I want—I certainly want to ask you about the dueling dinosaurs. But if I started with any of that, uh, which I want to do, I, I don't know if we'd ever have time to talk about Jurassic Park. So, uh, <laughs> for anyone listening, Dr. Elizabeth D. Jones has done something really incredible with the the cultural impact of Jurassic Park, and written a whole nonfiction book about the the intersections between science, research, media, and uh, and the public and celebrity status, kind of like rising out of the global impact of, of of what Jurassic Park did to us, and so. <laughs> of all the things I want to ask you about, I also want to ask you about this. Let's start off with like getting to know each other a little bit. How did uh, how tell me about your familiarity with with the movie and the, and the and the novel Jurassic Park? Uh, let's go back to the first time I saw Jurassic Park. I was seven years old, and it terrified me, so I stopped watching it. Yeah, and I didn't watch it again until I was in college and started doing research on the history of ancient DNA research and realizing that Jurassic Park couldn't just be an afterthought. It was something that was, at least in popular culture, the core of what ancient DNA research was. So I did my homework, which was pretty fun homework. I read Jurassic Park for the first time, and I watched the movie. And that really helped, I guess, give a, a good handle on the popular the popular side of what public were for when they were first introduced to ancient DNA research, this is a, for the most part, what they were introduced to. So not just the science behind it, but what could be done with the science, which mm-hmm. was, as we know, bringing back dinosaurs. What could be possibly done with this? <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the fascination of it. So like, I like to think that uh, the novel is a bestseller. The novel is very good and everybody loves it. But really what made Jurassic Park the, the phenomenon was the movie. The movie like was like um shot out of a cannon or whatever the expression is it was it was bigger than than life it had a global impact and it has had a lasting impact ever since and uh in in noticeable ways and and that's kind of really interesting in terms of what you've done with the book in terms of researching the history of (laughs) how people have been influenced into investigating uh, ancient dna and what that means and the popularization of of everybody sort of knowing that oh yeah we can clone dinosaurs or or not (laughs) and how they get familiar with that did you love the movie did you like the movie did you like the book what were your impressions when you when you got through them well you know i didn't read jurassic park and i didn't watch jurassic park from a disinterested perspective Mm -hmm. so um it was i don't think i got the experience to just read it or watch it for the fun of it because I had my historian of science and my sociologist of science hat on the whole time. But yes, I absolutely loved it for that reason because a lot of what people like to talk about is that, you know, the science and the science fiction of Jurassic Park. And so, yes, that is very much important for me, like where that influence starts. Like, was it science influencing Uh, culture or was it culture influencing science and really when we look at some of the historical evidence we see that it's a bit of both and that's what's fascinating Mm -hmm. about both the book and the movie and the entire history of ancient DNA research which we're talking about from the 1980s to today is that it's really this give and take and it's not you know it's the question of the chicken or the egg and it the point is is that it doesn't matter so much where it started the point is is that it's a ongoing influence and relationship and tracing that is really fascinating 
So I, I loved the book and I loved the movie for, you know, the sheer entertainment. But then the way that the science of ancient DNA research and also dinosaur paleontology, like in, in terms of how dinosaurs were um, depicted as, you know, their, their looks, but also their behavior, that, that was fascinating from an entertainment, but also an educational point of view. Even if some things weren't so accurate, you could dive into why aren't they so accurate and mm. what is. So mm-hmm. that's the value there, I think. So your book is called Ancient DNA, The Making of a Celebrity Science. It's published by Yale University Press in 2022, and I'm told it reveals the untold story of the rise of a new scientific field, ancient DNA research, and how Jurassic Park and popular media influenced its development. The inspiration to begin asking these questions about how did Jurassic Park affect science? (laughs) When did you start asking these questions, and how did this eventually become something like, you know what, I'm going to write a book about this whole thing? So let me tell you an embarrassing story and it's actually not so embarrassing because I I, I put it in the preface of my book. So I guess I'm (laughs) over it. It's really telling because it explains how I got into this field, which is very much, it was just by accident. Um, If we want to call it accident, you can call it many things. But um, long story short, I was an undergrad at North Carolina State University. Um, A really famous paleontologist, Mary Schweitzer, had just been hired. I was a naive freshman, a non-science student, needed to take his science elective. I took Dinosaurian World because I thought it'd be easy. It wasn't easy. Um, It was incredibly difficult. It was taught by Mary Schweitzer. And I remember watching on TV that one of the science channels, I think it was Discovery Channel, was talking about this big documentary they were going to do about um, a scientist who had claimed that they found proteins from a T-Rex. And I thought, that is that is insane. So after class one day, I asked her, I said, you know, there's this documentary about this paleontologist that claims to have found proteins from a T-Rex. Like, what? have you heard of this work? What is it? you believe it? And she, she just smiled at me and said, well, why don't you watch it? And then we can talk about it. And so I did. And I was absolutely mortified. Oh my goodness. The whole thing was about her, her groundbreaking research, the reason why she had the position at NC State. And I mean, I was just clueless. And from then on, I just was fascinated by how much her work was celebrated for its pioneering efforts. Um, but also how much it was heavily criticized because it was a pioneering effort. And it was carrying so much of that baggage, if we want to call it that, from Jurassic Park. Mm. And so I wanted to look into not necessarily, you know, proteins, ancient proteins, but I wanted to look into the ancient DNA aspect. And reading the scientific articles, all of them pretty much, uh, was challenging for me as a historian but you have to learn to do it if you're going to write about it. And then I got a good overlay of the field, but realized that it was missing a critical component, which was like the lived experiences of the scientists who were still for the most part alive and practicing and to use their memories of growing up in this field and the, the successes and the hardships, but then also the, the role of popular culture in all of that. So as I started exploring it, talking to scientists, um, interviewing them, it became very, very clear how much of a role that media generally played in the development of 
this theme called ancient DNA research, and as well as how much Jurassic Park was kind of like the flagship, like popular cultural icon that carried them through, especially some of the during some of their toughest times. It was just such interesting material that I couldn't not write a book about it. Another fun fact, I never wanted to write a book. <laughs> never. Never. Uh, as a historian, I remember learning about the book writing process and thinking, who would want to do that? Um, and here I am. And I'm glad I did. It's because when you have wonderful information that really shows you about the process of science, but also is preserving some of these scientists' memories of it, it's, you know, perhaps a moral obligation to share it. Mm-hmm. And, and it sounds like uh, the interviewing process was a big part of um, capturing that sentiment around the, the height. Like, people don't write down, uh, I guess, the cultural zeitgeist uh, when they're writing a yeah. paper. You kind of, you, you, you live that, but yeah, that doesn't become a matter of record in a way. That's and, exactly right. Yeah, unless, unless somebody, you know, goes out and gets it and does that intentionally. So capturing that, that sentiment is more challenging to put into into the public record than, than maybe you might think at first glance. And so interesting work. How many interviews did you think do you think that you did off the top of your head? Can you recall? Yeah, I did just over fifty. Wow. Um, yeah, and that was that was incredible because for the when I could, I traveled around to the labs to meet the people and to also interview postdocs and grad students. So to get a whole spread of the different generations of ancient DNA researchers, so the ones who were there in the very early days when it wasn't even a thing you could do, to the students who are, who are coming into something that's pretty well established. And um, so, yeah, 50, 50 scientists, and they came from all different backgrounds. Some were geneticists, some paleontologists or paleobotanists, epidemiologists, archaeologists, the whole array wow. and they were primarily in North America and Europe and Australia mm-hmm. and I suppose all English speaking as well <laughs> uh, for the most part or mm-hmm. at least could and because that's one of um, that's one thing that my my book doesn't do that needs to be done is to include those scientists um, that are doing amazing work in the ancient DNA in non-English speaking mm-hmm. countries, South America, there's a lot of great work going on. But um, that's my 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 personal limitation is that I I don't speak any other language than English, but and that is to my disadvantage to get a, a more robust global picture. Mm-hmm. But we got to start somewhere. But that is that is hopefully in the plan down the road. Mm-hmm. Well, those must have been fascinating interviews. So people were talking about how much did Jurassic Park feature in these interviews that you were doing where people like, obviously they were inspired to do the work. They were doing interesting things, collecting either soft tissues or DNA samples. Um, did you did Jurassic Park come up a lot? What was your experience with uh, in the interviews regarding the, the, the popularity of, uh, of the film? Jurassic Park was talked about by every interviewee. Um, also partly because my questions were about, I did ask them about their research, how they got into it, and then also their interactions with or opinions of media work around their research and also about Jurassic Park. But 
every interview we talked extensively, either positively or negatively or more or less neutrally about the role of Jurassic Park. And researchers from different generations talked about it. So some of our younger researchers, you know, they called it the Jurassic Park effect. And what we mean by that is a couple of the best examples out there that have some some really strong um, oral evidence, but historical evidence as well, and scientific evidence is um, the influence that Jurassic Park, the film specifically had on um, grant funding and publication timings, um, researcher recruitment, and then also like setting research agendas. So one real quick that everyone really likes to talk about is in 1993 when the movie was coming out a team of researchers in california were trying to do the jurassic park hypothesis thing so extracting dna from an insect in amber and um, they did and this insect in amber was 135 million years old and it was a little weevil and they published the results um, in nature and they were published on june 10th 1993 and historians love dates, but this date is particularly important because it was the day after the Jurassic Park movie premiere and the day before its public release in movie theaters across the U.S. So that timing caused a huge media splash, and the authors said it was a coincidence, the journal, no comment. But here's the thing is that nature and its, and its counterpart science are journals that do publish rigorous scientific research, but they are in the business of being appealing to the general public. And so they do cater to professional and popular interest. And this was one of those things that was certainly both. So you see this big influence around that. This It, it put ancient DNA on the map mm-hmm. and it influenced research agendas like at the natural history museum in london a huge grant went to actually test out quote quote the jurassic park hypothesis and um big bummer in every effort they made to uh, (laughs) replicate results of getting insect dna from amber specimens they were unable to they they i think they said something pretty funny in their scientific article that said you know we failed spectacularly or (laughs) (laughs) like we 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 failed uh in in every way imaginable and so that really debunked the whole jurassic park hypothesis and that wasn't just the something that had a momentary impact It, it it had a widespread impact on the entirety of the field and for the duration of ancient dna research um because people really took a step back and said we thought we could do this million-year-old DNA thing, and we can't. Mm. Um, is this really a reliable approach to studying ancient creatures? What can we really do with it? It, it caused a, a huge backlash among some of the more conservative scientists to uh, really rein in the, the popularity and the celebrity of this new science in order to create some more realistic expectations, but also, you know, 
save save their careers in the process. <laughs> Well, you make an interesting point, and I've heard you uh, say this. Uh, I, I did some research, and, and uh, you, you spoke. So, not to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but um, <laughs> when you start hearing about coincidences uh, <laughs> that the paper just happened to come out the exact day that the the, the film was debuting, uh, is is a little bit like mm, maybe you're, maybe you're not being entirely truthful about uh, this <laughs> coincidence. But um, you, you spoke of uh, figurative contamination. That um, that uh, it's this fascinating idea that uh, this celebrity of cloning an ancient DNA and all these ideas contaminates the process as opposed to like actually the the experiment itself. It doesn't mean that there's actually things getting in there, but your approach to the process, your approach to the science, your funding for the science, your plans to do the science, all of these things can be figuratively contaminated by the celebrity of, of in this case ancient DNA and, and cloning dinosaurs. Did that come up a lot? Like in, during your interviews, did people talk about like how this influence is like <sighs> harming <laughs> the scientific process in a way? Yes, absolutely. So even even researchers that benefited from the, the celebrity of their science did express reservations around it and, and noticing the, the negative consequences, whether it was media taking the implications of the results too far so you know going on about the de-extinction possibility the bringing back of extinct creatures whatever they may be um or whether it was colleagues that were negative about it but the the thing is is that it, it was hard to do in in the book but as as a historian it's very difficult to separate what evidence you're putting out there and what that portrays um, and and not saying that you are the one saying this. So <laughs> so these uh, perceived, you know, abuses of, of celebrity in the ancient DNA world were mainly scientists perceived abuses. Mm -hmm. um, I'm collecting that information and I'm putting it out there and um, and analyzing it. But what you really see, too, is that, yes, there's this very clear understanding of wanting to be in the media spotlight, but being wary about that, because once you put your results out there, your message out there, um, or that quote out there, it, you lose control over it. And that's the way it is with all science, but you see it particularly well in ancient DNA research because it's the celebrity science, so mm -hmm. it's an extreme of it. But but what's amazing about this community of researchers is really across the board, they're very savvy with the media. So I wouldn't call them outright celebrity scientists in their own, although there are, of course, people like Savanti Pava, who, you know, and he's also just won the Nobel Prize, um, who would come very close. But they're very savvy with the media and they understand their need for the media. And we can, we can you know, be a little bit cynical or reductionist and say, well, it's, well, this is just how science works in a capitalist society. Mm -hmm. And sure, that's true. But they're very well aware of this relationship between getting, getting press for whatever reason in whatever high profile journal in order to get, you know, more high profile press in order to get more money to do more research. And it's this cycle. One of the researchers called it a self-perpetuating system. And so, they understood the stakes of really engaging with 
a relationship with the media, especially around this Jurassic Park mission. But it was something that was really important for them to do, especially when what they were trying to do didn't even exist as a research program or as a clear funding possibility. So they had to make the case for themselves in order to get to the point to where they could see what was possible. And yeah, there's, I would I think a lot of scientists would say there's a lot of, a lot of heartbreak along the way. Um, on, not just in the lab, but you know, out in public, out with the media and how that influenced what they did or didn't do in the lab as, as, a, as a consequence. That's interesting. In terms of, like, you mentioned how um, you put it out there and then it becomes kind of like it belongs to the, the public in a way. Um, <laughs> and and I, guess, I think that's a big element of, of celebrity is once there's an image out there and it's an image of you or, or, or in this case, it's ancient DNA. Um, maybe we talk about, about, like, what impacts has the celebrity status of, of ancient DNA in terms of becoming a celebrity, what are the the good and the bad that comes with with it being so visibly popular with everyone? So, is your question what is what is the <laughs> good and the bad of it becoming so well, popular? It's helped uh, the the field, oh. but I'm sure it's also hindered the field in some respects. Um, yeah. What did your interviews reveal in terms of uh, the the good and the bad, the yin and the yang of uh, of, of oh, being okay. super popular? Yeah. It, the the good is that. Okay, I'm think, gosh, there's a million things running through my head. <laughs> so um, the first thing I think is just the general recognizability of something that's pretty niche, um, extracting DNA from fossils. And when you can say, you know, sort of like the, the Jurassic Park premise, and people have this image, like you said, this this celebrity image already out there that's, you know, it's like commodifying in a sense the science, not the scientists, but the, what you can do in science. And that's something that's extremely beneficial because people can hold on to it and they pay attention. And then you can go from there to talk about the nuances. You know, what's science, what's science fiction, um, what we actually do in the lab, as scientists like to say. Um, and also because of that, um, one researcher said that, you know, the media always calls them because when they've got nothing, they know that someone in their lab is going to have something really interesting because they're doing something on ancient humans or even dinosaurs and, of course, like the mammoth. And, you know, there are there's so many celebrity specimens within the field and also really, really difficult technical groundbreaking research that's going on. It's just something that everyone wants to know about mm -hmm. and somehow all of the time. And that is a good thing. <laughs> Um, for getting their research communicated and also then in turn getting it funded because that is a key piece, not just for the sake of bragging because there's this bigger movement in science communication for scientists to have a, du a duty in a sense to communicate their research to the public. And then on the flip side of it is that, you know, that when you lose control of the message um, and a lot of researchers were particularly grumpy about certain other researchers that seemed to be too um, too bold in their claims and too too frivolous with their their methods. As I say, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, mm -hmm. and so there's a lot of resentment at, at certain scientists who were putting out certain results in certain journals. Um, so one of them is. 
a team claimed to have found dinosaur DNA. Later turned out that some other researchers in ancient DNA tried to replicate it. They found out that it was actually human DNA that they had replicated. <laughs> so, you know, extremely embarrassing. And it was embarrassing for them because what one team did had an effect on the collective and vice, and mm-hmm. vice versa. Mm-hmm. And, they were, and what was at stake was their reputation and their further funding. And they didn't want to seem like a joke. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a lot of cases, it was coming across like that, especially in the 90s. But here I want to say it's important to take a step back and, yes, realize the role that celebrities playing, but to realize that any any new science has to do the hard work of seeing what's possible and what's not possible. And that requires a lot of trial and error and a lot of success and failure mm-hmm. and it just was it just so happened that in a celebrity science a lot of their failure was out there in the public not behind closed doors in the labs but it was out there for yeah. everyone to see and um, that's what was especially difficult and that's what a lot of my interviewees particularly either just noticed or noticed and were resentful of mm-hmm and that's the the down the downside of being very famous is uh is your mistakes are <laughs> become public knowledge as well. I yes. <laughs> yep. Your whole being. Your whole being. <laughs> um, so you did all the research. You you spoke to uh, fifty interviews uh, interviewees. How close are we to cloning a dinosaur after all? <laughs> Just jump right to it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh we are we are not close at all not to a dinosaur um because dinosaur dna has not been found yet Mm. um and here's well and then and people will be annoyed that i said yet um (laughs) but here's the thing is that um it it could be there somewhere and we just haven't found it also it's not just a matter of finding it but it's a matter of extracting it Mm -hmm. and uh sequencing it and sequencing enough of it and then there are a million other considerations after that so really ancient dna or getting it is just the first step or one possible first step in bringing back any kind of extinct creature and so the dinosaur is a no-go um pretty hard line on that right now but there are there are some other animals out there that um i think uh I really do think that we'll be seen maybe soonish. Okay. So I heard there might be like, an, uh, a rat or something, like some rodent that they were thinking of cloning. And then everybody seems to be, it's famously uh, the mammoth. Are these things that are like on the horizon? Yeah, I really do think the mammoth is on the horizon. Wow. And I say that um, because, um, all right, so let's go back. Um, in the media, this idea of, bringing back a mammoth has been around since the 1980s and um it got out there really because an undergraduate wrote a fictional story about some scientists resurrecting the mammoth and a newspaper got hold of it and thought it was legit and they published it and it went it went like wildfire across you know the globe and then it had to be of course you know retracted or explained that no 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 no, a student wrote this it's not the real deal but long story short is that it's that possibility has just stuck with us and um people have been saying a number of researchers have been saying for a while that 
you know, we're almost there. We're getting closer with the mammoth. Um, also another organism called the thylacine or Tasmanian tiger. Really, really interesting creature that looks like um, kind of like a tiger, kind of like a dog, but and it eats meat, but it's a marsupial. So really, really bizarre. Um, but the mammoth is really on the horizon because George Church, who is a Harvard geneticist, um, is behind this effort. It's a new uh, organization called Colossal, as in new, like just announced formally a year ago. Okay. And um, they, um, George Church is important because he brings a lot of credibility to um, what people used to refer to as crazy ideas. So a lot of my interviewees, their opinion of de extinction, they, they called it things like they said it's crazy, it's ludicrous, it's mad, it's a freak idea. Um, they didn't think too highly of it um, morally or or given the biological or the technological um, features that you would need in order to accomplish it. But George Church and his team are doing something different because they have uh, this technology called CRISPR, which you've probably heard of. Um, it's, um, I'm not an expert, but in a really a uh, rude explanation of it is like a cut and paste feature. So you go into the genome if you've got it and you cut out the bits you want, insert them in to another genome where you want them in order to change what is perhaps phenotypically expressed. So like on the outside. So, you know, if you, you don't want just an elephant, but maybe a hairy elephant, yeah. you know, that's what you need to do in order to get some sort of mammoth. Um, philosophically though, is that just a mammoth? I don't know. One of my interviewees said um, it would just be a hairy elephant. Yeah. And what's the difference? And so there are a lot of questions around there about what makes a, a species a species and how far do we have to go in order to say we've resurrected one. So, yeah, with that technology, with this credibility, and with tons of money behind it, um, it's something that... I think we can seriously expect. I don't know when. I don't know when. I don't know if that's like 10 years or 20 or 30 or, but um, where there's a will, there's a way, I suppose. That's amazing. Well, I'm trying to think. I think I heard that like the ancient Egyptians lived in the same world as mammoths. So like they're not so extinct that they were from ages and ages ago. So they might, I mean, the world's very different now than it was then. Yeah. It'd be very interesting to see what they do. <laughs> well, I think Michael right. Crichton uh, has cautioned us against doing that. Um, but who are we to, to say it wouldn't be fascinating and go for it? <laughs> yeah, it's it's this idea that everyone, or at least a lot of the scientists, are tired of hearing about. But there's just something about it that we can't get away from. And mm -hmm. it's, it's probably that idea that we're bringing back to life something that stopped existing. If they do bring back a mammoth, I insist that they call it Snuffleupagus. That's important to me. Oh, oh absolutely. <laughs> that must be his name. <laughs> absolutely. Oh, with big, long eyelashes. Yes. We'll toggle that gene. <laughs> toggle that one way up with big yeah, eyelashes. <laughs> Snuffy's got oh, eyelashes. Okay, bird. Um, <laughs> so um, one of the things that uh, everybody knows about Dr. Jones is that 
Dr. Jones belongs in a museum, and uh, and that's where you spend your time. Uh, you're saying some of your 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 work is with the the Hell Creek Formation Community Outreach. What sort of things with the Hell Creek Formation do the public you reach out to get the most excited about? Right. So this is all a part of a public science project called Cretaceous Creatures, and it's unique because it's the largest one to date. And what we're doing is our team of paleontologists here at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences, we go out to Montana to the Hell Creek Formation, um, the area near where the dueling dinosaurs were found, which for your listeners, if they don't know, I'm sure they will know soon, dueling dinosaurs are an exquisite fossil find. It's a supposed uh, tyrannosaur and a triceratops perfect, nearly perfectly preserved um, um, and locked in seeming battle. So one of the questions that the researchers here are going to figure out is, you know, were they, were they locked in battle, something really wonderful and dramatic, or was it something more like, you know, their skeletons were washed, washed near each other and they, you know, preserved like that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, what we're doing is we're taking tons and tons of sediment, um, so basically dirt, bags of dirt, from the Hell Creek Formation. We bring them back here to North Carolina, and we distribute them into to little boxes. Um, so every student across North Carolina that participates um, gets a little box of dirt, but in the box of dirt are very, very tiny microfossils, so really tiny teeth or bones or shells or scales of all the organisms that lived alongside the dueling dinosaurs, which is pretty incredible. So what they're doing is they are discovering their own microfossils. And these are fossils that no scientists have seen before. So we get the bags of dirt and we distribute them out to them. So they're the first ones seeing and touching these real 66 million year old fossils. And on top of that, they get to identify them. So we have an online module that's a, um, does your fossil look like this? Does it look like this? That helps them to learn how to identify fossils and then make a decision, um, select their confidence in what they found and submit that data back to us at the museum. We verify it and then paleontologists across the world can use this, what will be a massive database. Uh, and it's pretty awesome because it's a four-year project it's all across North Carolina. Then we're going to expand nationally and then internationally. So we're going to have um, eighth grade scientists all over the world um, helping us collect real scientific data and um, hopefully feeling like they're a part of a, a bigger process and effort. That's really neat. I know that um, when we go out with the kids that uh, keeping your eye on the ground and finding like an impression of a fossil or some of that in a rock is, is the it's so much fun and just looking at it and trying to figure out what it is and you'll never know I, mean, I don't know what they are but they look like a little i don't know horn or something like that like just a tube with a shell or some sort but yeah getting a, a whole bunch of like microfossils would be so fascinating to look at and i can imagine that'd be very engaging <laughs> that's cool and so yeah. how, that's for four years how long have you been doing that then like where in the process are you I'm a, I'm a year into it. Mm -hmm. So we, we formally launched this past fall. And um, 
So we're doing North Carolina this year and then North Carolina next year, and then we'll expand out to teachers and students okay. um, in, in year three. So we've got some, um, we've made some really good progress in, in the sense we've got about 55 teachers across the state participating, which means about 4,500 students. Wow. And so far, from really just uh, 16 teachers and their students, they've already identified about a thousand microfossils. Wow! I was going to say, how are they doing? Are they uh, <laughs> are they giving you good <laughs> that's results? <or>? A, that's, <laughs> that's a good question. Okay, so here's the thing: uh, they get it right about 50 percent of the time. Okay. <laughs> so, um, from an educational perspective, that's phenomenal. Okay. Because these are eighth graders yeah. that have never really heard of a microfossil, have never seen one and have never tried to identify one. And, you know, I have a, I'm not a microfossil expert, but you know, I have a heck of a hard time sometimes identifying them myself. My, so the fact that they get it right 50% of the time means that the online module that they're following is helping them. And also that they're really engaging with the critical thinking and the comparing and contrasting and um, so we're pretty we're pretty proud of them and their 50-50 accuracy. That's really neat. So another part of what uh, I see that you do is uh, it's um, you're a coordinator for Cretaceous Creatures, which is cool. Yes. Uh, so what other creatures besides dinosaurs do you focus on uh, from the Cretaceous? Yeah, that's really fun because a lot of a lot of the creatures are sort of like creatures we have around today. So most people think dinosaurs. Mm. Um, so yes, there are some triceratops teeth, some tyrannosaur teeth, you know, some of the classics um, in our microfossil sediment, but we also have like little tiny mammal teeth. So like sort of like little mice. Um, there's also lots of lizards, there's turtles, there are fish, and it's really, that's one thing we want to communicate to the students is that, yeah, these paleo environments look pretty different, especially if you're looking at the, the big creatures or the, you know, the, the dinosaurian creatures. But in what ways is that paleo environment, you know, similar to our own? What organisms did make it past that extinction boundary and have evolved and are thriving today in some form or another? It might sound like it's just a lizard, but it's, it's pretty cool that it's a lizard that that's that, that is that old and that we've got them around with mm -hmm. us today. That we still have them. Because one of the things I wonder when I think about dinosaurs, particularly carnivores, we always kind of, growing up anyhow, uh, imagine the dinosaurs ate other dinosaurs. But the more I think about it, almost, almost certainly the carnivores are going to be eating things that are like bite size, as opposed to... I mean, we have fossils that show that tyrannosaurs bit into the bones of really big uh, herbivores. And I think that the Deinonychus was found with a, with a, a skeleton of a Tenontosaurus. And so everybody who does paleo art of a Tenontosaurus has to have Deinonychus jumping all over it. Um, <laughs> but uh, so we have some evidence or some evidence has been presented anyhow that, that dinosaurs are eating other dinosaurs. But in my head, I, I kind of rationalize that they must have also just been eating little things too, just bite-sized stuff that you don't have to, you know, put your life on the line to eat. And so I, I wonder, like, are they eating, do you, do you suppose that they're eating just bugs, birds, fish, lizards, turtles? Are they, is it more likely, do you think, that carnivores are just going for that sort of thing? Or, or were, 
you know, what what percentage of their diet do you suppose <laughs> was dinosaur? Right. Yeah, you know, I I don't know the answer to that question, and but I will follow up with an answer <laughs> um, because I one I don't know if we actually know, mm-hmm. and and two if we do know I don't know what the answer is. But you're absolutely right. Like <laughs> I love how you put it. Is that you know, go for a meal that's not putting your life on the line. Yeah. Like, don't be so dramatic every time you got to eat. So you know, it's, um, but abs- absolutely, you know, they, they were eating these smaller creatures, the carnivores. And, 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 it, and that is something that we can, we can confidently say that because we see extant creatures doing similar things today. You know, mm-hmm. you don't just necessarily eat one type of, one type of meat, you know, you, you are opportunistic and, and you eat what is around. But, and that is, that is something that we eventually want to get across with Cretaceous creatures as far as some more detailed lesson plans. Um, so when the students find what they find, so say they found a couple of, you know, the mega predators, like or evidence of the mega predators and fish and um, smaller mammals and all that kind of stuff, to have them create a food web of you know who ate who and, right. and exactly like you said it's sort of like broaden that understanding of it's not just this dinosaur on dinosaur dramatic fight to the death that it's sort of what's the day-to-day what does the day-to-day meal look like mm-hmm. and as part of a bigger understanding of the you know the ecology and how everything and everyone you know work together so I love that you brought that up because you're very right. That's that is very much in the public perception. I mean, even mine. That's just what you think. Yeah. 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 It's 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 because they're too famous. <laughs> the celebrity of dinosaurs. They must be just fighting each other. That's the way we think of it. But uh, yeah, of course, right. Yeah. If I had to eat, I don't know if I'd go and try and kill a dinosaur to eat. <laughs> That'd just be hard. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Have you I seen these things? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Well, we're plumb out of time. I wish we had more. Where could people find the book if they were looking to to learn more about yeah. what what you're doing there, or if they want to learn more about um, the museum? Uh, where would you recommend people go look to find more details? Yes. So the book is available um, online, all major book retailers. So um, I guess I should promote Amazon because it is easy to get a book on Amazon, and also they discount it sometimes okay so please go purchase it wherever you like to buy your books and if you want to follow me on social media you can follow me at dr dino dna so that's at dr dino dna um, twitter and instagram and then absolutely visit our museum website, the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences in Raleigh, and, and actually come visit us and come by and see our lab on the third floor. Um, we are in a big glass lab, so we're kind of like fish in a fishbowl, and you can walk by and watch us as we work. Have, have, we have a lot of really cool research going on here from dinosaur eggs to, you know, T-Rex stuff, you know, and the- all, all the good things you think of. And the dueling dinosaurs. That, that is an incredible, you know, you're a historian. Right. What will a historian say in 50 years on what was learned from the dueling dinosaurs? Oh, yeah. So the Dino Lab exhibit should be opening this fall. And the dueling dinosaurs are going to be on display. And 
not just on display, but you will be able to come in and stand right next to them and stand right next to my colleagues who are going to be working on them. So what are they going to, what would historians say about it? Well, you know, I actually do hope to write a book on this at some point. So maybe it'll be what I say in 15 years. But what's fascinating to me is, is um, where the dueling dinosaurs came from and how they were found and how their journey, what their journey was from the field. They were found by a, you know, Clayton Phipps, a dinosaur cowboy. And it had a pretty rocky journey to get here to a public museum um, where it could be made available to scientists and the public, uh, which is one of the values of the scientific community is. Um, And so having this specimen here is really was difficult, but important and interesting because whatever scientists do find will be made publicly available. Um, for others to see and study. And I think what probably the public will be most interested to find out from the dueling dinosaur specimens is, you know, what kind of tyrannosaur this is. Um, is it, you know, the, the classic Tyrannosaurus rex? Is it something else? Most likely something else. Oh. And then, you know, what were they doing together, the Triceratops and the Tyrannosaur? How did, how did they die, and what can we know about that to what degree of confidence? Um, that is probably what a lot of the public are really interested in. Mm-hmm. You mentioned before the Tyrannosaur would appear to be fully articulated. Is the Triceratops mm-hmm. as well? Pretty much, yeah. As far as you know? Because I imagine it's still just a great big rock, right? I mean, <laughs> they haven't yeah, been prepared yet. <laughs> yeah, it, it is... Like, they had told me it was a ton of rock, and it is a ton of rock. Some of the the specimen has been prepped enough, um, exposed enough from the jackets that, um, like, the most um, photogenic parts of the Tyrannosaur and Triceratops. But then the, the rest of the skeleton are still in big old jackets in the basement, and... It's going to be one heck of a time that someone other than me obviously <laughs> is going to have getting those massive things of rock up and into the dino lab. So that should be happening, I think, maybe this summer or early fall. So I'm really excited to watch that. Wow. And I'll, I'll have to close my eyes probably half the time. But <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. amazing. That's amazing. It, it is. It's um. Yeah, I actually like pinch myself daily because when um, I never wanted to do this kind of work because I didn't know it was possible. But I mean, I'm just the, the lab here is incredible for the science they do, but they're also just kind people, which is key. And the fact that they that the dueling dinosaurs are here and I get to kind of, you know, you know, watch it sort of you know be a part of it to some extent is pretty remarkable. So stay tuned for sure. Yeah, you can't miss that uh, the dueling dinosaurs. That'll be that'll be in the news. <laughs> awesome. Of course, well, of course. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate. It. I hope you had fun. Yeah, yeah. This was yeah. You're very fun to talk to. Oh, yeah. go on. All right. Got me thinking about got me thinking about some good stuff, and also you word things in ways that 
that I haven't thought about and it, it sounds really good and it gets the point across. So yeah, thanks for that. I appreciate it. All right. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being on the show. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, uh, yeah, I hope you had fun. A big thank you to Dr. Elizabeth Jones. Thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it. So our text this week is uh, the fifth iteration and the chapter search. The fifth iteration, the quote from Malcolm's report, as I believe it to be, is flaws in the system will now become severe on 269. Uh, And in a synopsis of the chapter, Gennaro and Muldoon investigate the site of the Hadrosaur stampede when Arnold radios them saying that he's found Nedry's stolen jeep. Meanwhile, Grant awakens in the raft, flowing down the river to Lex and Tim, quarreling about their dad, while Microceratopses, or if you have a different type of book, maybe they're Clovisaurus up there, but I don't think that's right, bounce in the branches above them. When Muldoon and Gennaro reach the second jeep, they find Nedry's corpse and don't bother collecting him, but do prioritize the weaponry before returning to the site of the stampede. But there's no sign of the big Rex, so they have to wait for her to reappear. Meanwhile, Grant and the kids flow up to the aviary, and they climb out of the raft in search of a telephone or motion sensors. All right, stuff that the characters do. We have Donald Gennaro. Gennaro overlooks the astonishing devastation from the Tyrannosaur attack on the Hadrosaur stampede on page 271. He doesn't make it two paragraphs into this scene without going back into question mode. What are we waiting for? Unarmed and unable to outrun the Big Rex, Gennaro agrees to, quote, live dangerously with Muldoon. And then more questions on page 272. What is it? How do you know? How do you know the Tyrannosaur didn't come later? General appears more at peace with discovering Nedry's corpse than when he found Regis's remains on page 273, though he admits that the compies appear eerie to him. General retrieves the, quote, gray metal tubing from the rear of the jeep. Nedry must have moved it because Muldoon put it in the passenger seat, right? But those are just details. I mean, Crichton was so careful about where those night vision goggles were between the two land cruisers earlier, but now he's all willy-nilly with the rocket launcher. But no matter, this isn't of great concern to us. Gennaro is intimidated by the rockets in the rocket launcher on 274 and takes a step back, almost stepping on Nedry's body. He carefully steps over Nedry's body, demonstrating he still dignifies humanity with some respect, unlike Muldoon. And he's filled with questions still. What are these? What about him? And Gennaro is like a bad contestant on Jeopardy, right? <laughs> he doesn't know the answers, just questions. Robert Muldoon. Muldoon deduces simply that the Rex had caught a hadrosaur, perhaps by noticing the obvious flattened grass and blood stains, but also by the noticeably large number of flies. And also he's begun drinking. Recall, it's like quarter after 7 a.m., right? On 271. Muldoon is still apprehensive because they're entirely unarmed against the Tyrannosaur. Even being in a Jeep isn't going to help them outrun Big Rex which Muldoon says can reach between 30 and 40 miles per hour. Muldoon asks Gennaro if he's ready to live dangerously, and Gennaro agrees. I like that Muldoon only asks people to do what they're comfortable doing, or at least with Gennaro, anyhow, and I think he does it with Sadler, too. That changes in the final scene when he has a cattle prod and Gennaro doesn't want to go down the rabbit hole, but we'll get to that in the end. Muldoon drives in concentric circles along the trampled earth. Recall it was 100 yards wide, so he circled the expanse of a football field in a concentric circle, that could take a while. And Muldoon discovers the remains of an infant hadrosaur in the field on 272. And Muldoon surveys the land and gives his interpretation of how the hunt went down by pointing out the differences in dinospores uh, he finds at the site. He reports that they have, quote, another hadro dead, possibly suggesting that there has been more than one hadrosaur death. I don't know. In reacquiring the Jeep Nedry stole, Muldoon figures Nedry took a wrong turnoff, which is how we wound up by a concrete barrier in the Jungle River on 273. Wu has said Nedry stole 15 embryos worth between $2 million and $15 million. 
Muldoon reads the scene of Nedry's death and concludes that it was the Dilophosaurs that got him, not the Compies. After all the damage at Jurassic Park, Muldoon has absolutely, absolutely no sympathy for Nedry, saying that being blinded and ripped down the center is, quote, not a nice way to go, and adding, quote, maybe there's justice in this world after all. Muldoon heartlessly leaves Nedry behind to be scavenged by the Compies. He's truly vindictive on 274. They return to the sauropod paddock with the rocket launcher, looking for the wrecks this time on 275. Muldoon navigates in concert with Arnold over the radio, but they can't find the Tyrannosaur. He's becoming visibly drunk, as after Arnold clicks off, Muldoon repeats him sarcastically, Checking now! And he's frustrated that Arnold hasn't made the Tyrannosaur a priority and know where she is at all times. It's literally a rampaging Tyrannosaurus. You tend to keep an eye on that sort of thing, but not Arnold. When Arnold can't find the Tyrannosaur, Muldoon switches his quarry. Perhaps they can rescue Grant and the kids while they're out here. But no, they're not showing up on the monitors either. Muldoon doesn't know what to do next. John Arnold. Muldoon and Arnold connect over the walkie-talkies on 272, and Arnold reports that he has found Nedry's Jeep. Arnold hasn't been keeping track of the Tyrannosaur in the control room, and now that he's looking for her, he can't find her. Quote, she's not showing up. Arnold can't find the kids with the motion sensors either, so he says they will all just have to wait. Dennis Nedry. With his plot discovered, Nedry's body is also found out in the park on 273. We've covered this before, but here we go. He appears indistinct and green because he's covered in compies who are scavenging on him when Muldoon and Gennaro arrive. His, quote, chubby, boyish face, now red and bloated, flies buzzing around his gaping mouth with a thick tongue. His body is mangled, the intestines torn open, and one leg chewed through. Tim Murphy, on the Mesozoic Jungle River, Tim can hear the cry of birds and see small chirping dinosaurs sleeping among the branches on 274. They're chirping and sleeping. How do you like that? When Lex wishes her dad were with them because he always knows what to do, Tim becomes irate. In part, I think, because he detests his dad, but also in part, I think, because Lex was in a way slighting Dr. Grant, too. And Tim has, for all intents and purposes, adopted Grant on this trip as his new dad. In any case, Tim is far more comfortable yelling at Lex about his daddy issues than he is telling his own dad about them. So he yells at Lex. She lands a zinger in retort to his outburst, saying that she's dad's favorite, which hurts Tim. But she responds with some kindness, noting that her dad loves him too. Tim appears to try and build on that kindness by sharing what he knows about the microceratops and the trees above them, but Lex doesn't get it. She doesn't care. Uh, Dr. Alan Grant. Grant looks at his watch, now awake from his snooze, and finds that it is 8 a.m. They've traveled 45 minutes north up the river on 274. The squabbling between Tim and Lex is eventually cut off by Grant upon sensing an issue upriver. He cancels their disagreement. Kids, shut up on 275. It doesn't work as planned, but it works out. They reach the aviary on page 276, and he's surprised at how large it is, and that there isn't any glass. Grant hasn't yet spotted anything in the aviary, but has suspicion that it contains large flying creatures. Grant recalls a lodge in the aviary and plans to stop to check for a phone or motion sensors. He is eager to connect with the control room about those raptors on the boat. Lex Murphy. She's trying to snatch some berries from the foliage above the raft after noticing the microceratops are eating them on 274. She becomes frustrated with Grant's denial. Recall she's been complaining about being hungry since they first saw the Big Rex way back yesterday afternoon before they met the sick Stegosaurus, and she hasn't eaten since then yet. In any case, she's upset with Grant, and she says she wishes her daddy were here. Daddy always knows what to do, and despite Tim's outburst, she is unfazed. She loves and misses her dad, and she gets petty about it, teasing Tim for not being dad's favorite. But she's sensitive that the comment may have stung a bit, so she reassures Tim that Daddy likes you too. But when Tim reciprocates by sharing some dino knowledge with her, she hasn't any time for that. Only very young boys are interested in dinosaurs, she replies, as if she's too mature for dinosaurs. On 275, when Grant asks her to shut up, 
she was all, I can do whatever I want, which is such a piss-off, but a blood-curdling shriek from somewhere downriver gives her reason enough to listen. Oh, that's all it takes. Merely life-and-death situations, or else you won't be cooperative for anyone, eh? Big sports fan. She's not a team player, though. Ultimately, right. We're supposed to think she's just a brat, I'm sure. Even to Lex, the aviary appears unfinished as they arrive on 276, but that it's lacking glass isn't a sign of incompletion. It just means that the birds are too big to escape through the panels. Mr. Murphy, daddy or dad, he obviously has a stronger relationship with Lex than with Tim, mostly based on similar interests. Mr. Murphy is a Mets fan who loves sports, as is Lex, whereas Tim is into computers on 274, and Lex emphasizes that dad still loves him too. I feel like perhaps Mr. Murphy feels more closely connected with Lex, and as a result, Tim feels distant, overlooked, misunderstood, and that obviously has significant deleterious effects on his relationship with his dad. Tyrannosaurus. Muldoon says Big Rex can run down an off-road jeep because she can reach speeds 30 to 40 miles per hour in 271. That's fast. Othnelia. When Muldoon and Gennaro start the jeep's engine, two Othnelians are startled and leap out of the grass on 271. The Othnelia have been scavenging on the infant hadrosaur carcass, leaving little bites the Muldoon can identify on 272. They weren't expressly said to be herbivores earlier, but they were lumped in with the Hypsilophodons and considered dryosaurs, and are commonly understood to be herbivorous. So I don't know why Crichton has them nipping at this carcass, but unless he got them confused with the Compies, who are routinely referred to as scavengers. Or, I mean, it's not entirely unbelievable that an animal, something like an Othnelia, might have consumed or scavenged some meat in their diet. That's not unheard of either, but it's a strange choice for Crichton anyhow to make Othnelia scavenging on the hadrosaur carcass. Hadrosaurs. The hadrosaur spore is described as chalky and filled with uric acid, giving it a white appearance on 272. Also, the juvenile hadrosaur carcass has a tattoo on its right foot, HD-09, indicating that it is supposedly number 9, of the 11 animals bred in the park, right? Procomp Signathus, referred to by its nickname the Compies, quote, found Nedry on 273. They're green and swarming all over Nedry's carcass, scavenging. There are a dozen delicate little predators no larger than ducks standing at the edge of the jungle, chittering excitedly. They have five-fingered hands, and they wipe their faces and chins, giving them an eerily human quality. And finally, a Compie squats on Nedry's open mouth and nibbles the flesh on his nose. Squatting on Nedry's mouth makes the compies perhaps intuitive halo players, eager to teabag a fallen player's face. Nice one, Crichton. You're ahead of your time. Dilophosaurus. Apparently, you get about two hours to wash the toxic saliva out of your eyes with the antivenin to avoid permanent blindness. And that antivenin is kept all over the park on 273, we're told. Microceratops. These little animals chirp and leap among the branches, eating clusters of bright red berries on branches on 274. These are pale yellow-colored Barely two feet tall, again size measured in height, as per Crichton's usual, with beaky heads like parrots on 275, we're told. In my edition, they're named Microceratops, though your edition may call them Microceratus. I don't know why. I don't quite understand what's going on there. I'm pretty sure your, your copy will have Microceratops up in the tree. Maybe you don't. I don't know. In my edition, they're named Microceratops. I don't know what might be your, in your edition. I know that Colovasaurus, for some reason, shows up in the list of animals on InGen's list in some editions of the book. I don't know why, nor can I fathom why they would change it. Colovasaurus, as we discussed in one of the earlier episodes, is like an iguanodon. It's not up in a tree. And it's also known from, like, scarce materials. Like, it doesn't make sense that Colovasaurus would be an animal that was chosen for this. Microceratops is kind of well un understood. It would make sense that it's up in a tree, maybe. I don't get it. I don't know what's up there. 
If you have Clovisaurus up in the trees, please email me and let me know. I don't believe it. All right, we have localities. The sauropod paddock. The grasses trampled flat for 100 yards in every direction. One big palm tree was uprooted and there was great washes of blood in the grass and on the rocky outcrop to the right, on 271, we're told. And that rocky outcrop, recall, was right where Grant and the kids had been during the stampede before fleeing up the largest tree. As two Othnelians emerge from the matted grass, we get another species of dinosaur in this paddock. That's the Triceratops, Hadrosaurus, Apatosaurus, Myosaurus, both Rexes, though these are intruders, and now Othnelians. And recall, I'm sure Tim spotted a Velociraptor running among the infant Hadrosaurs on the tour way back earlier as well, but nobody believed him back then. So almost everything is in this one paddock. Uh, the Jungle River. This was called the Mesozoic Jungle River on page 141, although not even once since then is it named that. However, as the river exits the lagoon and meanders north, it becomes, quote, narrower, we're told on 274. Here the banks close in on both sides and the foliage overhead meets in the middle. The aviary. The aviary has a, quote, big dome which rises above our protagonists in the raft on 275. It's enormous, a quarter of a mile in diameter or more on page 276, we're told. It has a pattern of geodesic struts which shine dully through the light mist. A thin mesh hangs inside each of the struts and there is no glass. And the jungle river flows through the aviary and they can float beneath the edge of the dome in their raft on page 276. The dome is so high you can't see its roof through the mist. That's kind of neat. Inside, there is a lodge, which is visible, quote, over the tops of the trees to the north on 276. This is ahead of them as the river runs north, generally speaking. The shore of the river is a muddy bank, not a trough or concrete moat, and they disembark their raft and have to walk through a dense forest of palm trees to reach the lodge. Remember that it was so misty you couldn't see the ceiling of the aviary, because I think in the next chapter it's so sunny you can see shadows on the ground. Uh... Pay attention to that. That'll be interesting. Stylistic techniques. Italics. He never knows what to do. On 274, emphasizes Tim in response to Lex's statement that she thinks her dad always has a plan. She wasn't even talking to Tim, so this is quite the outburst from Tim. That, that doesn't make it any less sincere. The emphasis is on never, emphasizing how much trust Tim and his dad have built up, which is not very much. Not if they're big birds. On 276, says Grant, alluding to the pterosaurs he's yet to spot in the aviary, but he suspects they're going to be quite large. Colon, quote, he was astonished by what looked like a battleground. Colon, the grass was trampled flat for 100 yards in every direction on 271. Here the colon separates a statement and an explanation, which is fine. Semicolons, quote, you've got about two hours to wash it out with the anti-venom. Semicolon. We keep it all around the park, just in case, on 273. And the semicolon returns, bringing formality back to Muldoon's conversations. Here, two thoughts on the importance of antivenin and the availability of antivenin are connected with the semicolon. Grant had seen it only from a distance, semicolon. Now he realized it was enormous, a quarter of a mile in diameter or more, on 276. Here, two clauses are joined together, firstly stating a state of perspective for Grant, and then his newly informed perspective of the aviary afterwards. Ellipses, quote, just because you're not his favorite ellipsis on 274, where this emphasis is a final jab, leaving the space open for retort, even though there's nothing left to say. Lex has won this argument. M-dash, the body was indistinct in green, M-dash, but then green shapes scattered away as the jeep pulled to a stop on 273. Here the M-dash serves as a fast-paced informal semicolon. Quote, his body was mangled. M-dash. The intestines torn open. One leg chewed through on 273. And again, Crichton is relying on the M-dash rather than a semicolon, I suppose, because this is informal. And while surveying the death scene of a saboteur who's betrayed you, costing lives, I guess one isn't necessarily interested in being formally polite. It's form and style coming together to deliver a stronger and artistic message, which is good 
Quote, they wipe the f- their faces and chins, giving them an eerily human quality, which M-Dash on 273. And this M-Dash serves as an interruption, as Gennaro's observations were cut off when Muldoon begins reading Nedry's trauma and concludes it was the Dilophosaur what killed him, not the compies. Watch it, M-Dash. You don't want to step in something. On 275, says Muldoon crudely, the M-Dash serves as again as a quick interruption to get Gennaro's attention to cause him pause. Quote, then as they came closer, he saw there wasn't any glass, M-Dash, just struts on 276. And here the M-Dash serves as a comma, separating Grant's expectations from his observations. Exclamation, look, look, on 275, says an uncredited voice before we turn the page. But we can guess that it's Lax. She's the most exclamatory character in the novel. It's surely her. Let's discuss some of the other things here. We have the iterations. This is a new iteration for us. And the chapter begins with flaws in the system will now become severe on 269. But the big element that differentiates this segment from the previous works is the Velociraptors. Yes, the Tyrannosaur is bad. Yes, escaping through the park has been bad. But everyone was still operating under the presumption that they were very close to having everything back under control. We're beyond underlying instabilities appearing. Now we're in flaws in the system are now severe. And we get all the power off, which leads to the Raptors being out. All the failures in the park, the containment, and safety in particular, but the elements of control come falling away in this iteration. The illusion of control begins to fall apart. Now it's a desperate rush to see whose will to survive is greater, man or Velociraptor. In the last iteration, it was about holding on to hope. This iteration is just survival at all costs. Timeline. As of page 274, it is 8 a.m. Recall that Robert Muldoon has already begun drinking whiskey. Contrivances and plot. In this chapter, Muldoon says that Wu said Nedry stole 15 embryos worth between 2 and $5 million. We know, however, that's not accurate. Nedry stole 15 types of embryos and, in fact, took two samples of each. As reported, quote, Nedry quickly took two of each, slipping them into the shaving cream can on page 176. Once again, a fun trivia question to stump your friends with, how many embryos did Nedry steal? The answer is two of each, 15 types, or 30 embryos. If you put money on it, you could make a quick buck stumping Dr. Wu, Robert Muldoon, and probably Gennaro, too. Next, there's a problem with Crichton's writing in here. On page 274, quote, they drifted along peacefully among dappled patches of light. If anything, they seemed to be moving faster than before. Awake now, Grant lay on his back and stared up at the branches overhead. No problem yet. In the bow, he saw her reaching up. Hey, what are you doing? He said. You think we can eat these berries? She pointed to the trees. Cut. Okay, the problem here is Tim and Grant have been mentioned, but not Lex yet. So to use an indeterminate pronoun like she or her isn't yet appropriate. Crichton must reference Lex before turning to the indeterminate pronoun. And hey, we're not fighting over Lex's preferred pronouns or Grant's preferred pronouns. We're literally saying Lex must be literarily referenced before the indeterminate pronoun comes up. It's like earlier when Crichton has Muldoon reference to this, but didn't say what on earth it was on page 193. John Arnold in the page 193 instance is using an alternative to the radio because the, the, because the quote, main board is down. Quote, I have to use this, he says. It's weak, but it ought to work. I've tried on all six channels. I know they have radios in the cars, but they're not answering on 193. It's probably a walkie-talkie or a short-band radio, but Crichton has used an indeterminate pronoun, this, without saying what the pronoun is referring to. Yeah, this happens in editing, and it's not unconscionable or anything, but it is wrong. And it was wrong on page 193, and it's wrong here on 274, as she starts asking about eating berries. You must refer to who the indeterminate pronoun refers to before you can rely on being indeterminate. It's just backwards. Park management. 
The tattoo on the hadrosaur's right foot indicates that each of the animals are tattooed for identification and potentially health records and stuff like that. It's labeled HD09, and we know that there are 11 hadrosaurs on the island, suggesting that this is the ninth hadrosaur introduced into the park, but now it is dead. It would also suggest that there are at least two other hadrosaurs which are of equal or younger age than this one, if number 10 and 11 are reasonably the next two of the 11 animals in the park, but whatever. In terms of motion sensors, we'll be reminded on page 277 by Malcolm that the motion sensors only cover 92% of the park, which is inadequate, he says, especially when you find that the remaining 8% are topologically unified, but we'll get to that in the next chapter. This 92% is consistent with what we learned in episode 26, Control, on page 129, and we were told at that time that there are places, like in the Jungle River, that the animals cannot be tracked. At the same time, we're told, though, that the motion sensors remember where and when an animal goes missing and waits for it to return or reappear. In this case, they should be able to locate where and when the Tyrannosaur was last detected by the motion sensor, but they don't. Instead, they are waiting, whatever that means. Finally, in terms of park management, I get that Muldoon is taking life into his own hands by hunting the Tyrannosaur out of containment with unproven tranquilizers and non-lethals, but drinking whiskey while also doing it has to be a breach of protocol, right? Like, he is really dodging back to the wild African parks and leaving his cushy in-gen position behind once he brings out his flask at 7 in the morning. Island layout. To reacquire the Jeep Nedry stole, Muldoon and Gennaro drive on the east road to come to a narrower service road leading toward the Jungle River on 272. Apparently in sector 1104, which is based on the overlaid grid lines on a map of the resort, we're told on 273. Just so you want to know. Poetic justice. The concept of poetic justice comes out of Muldoon's mouth while reviewing Nedry's demise on 273. Poetic justice is kind of self-explanatory, but let's get technical with it for the sake of being thorough. Poetic justice signifies the distribution at the end of a literary work of earthly rewards and punishments in proportion to the virtue or vice of the various characters. So it's said on page 230 of my seventh edition of the Glossary of Literary Terms by M.H. Abrams. It's nice to take some of these old books and use them. This isn't at the end of a literary piece of work, but it does come up at the end of Nedry's story arc. Upon reclaiming this jeep, this puts an end to the chaos that he unleashed on the island. Going forward, the problems in the park will be oversights on John Arnold's end, mostly de dealing with running on auxiliary power since the shutdown to get the phones back up and running, which they never did wind up using to call for a doctor to help Malcolm. Recall a helicopter can be there within 50 minutes. Hammond says it's about 40 minute trip. Back on page 76, and the doctor should have arrived and taken Malcolm back by like 9 a.m. But they don't call a doctor when they get the phones up. They just don't. Uh, but all that aside, Nedry has poetic justice doled upon him. Is his punishment proportional to his vice? The horror, terror, death, and costly damages, the trauma and loss caused by Nedry, do they balance out and equate to not a nice way to go? Is this poetic justice? I'd say likely. And it should make for an interesting idea to evaluate or rank all the deaths and measure whose actions are most punished or most rewarded by their virtues and vices. Nedry ranks as fairly balanced, I'd say. All right, and leaving on that note, I want to say one last time thank you to my special guest today, Dr. Elizabeth Jones. Raleigh, North Carolina isn't too far away. I remember I did a road trip with a couple guys from school when we were in Windsor uh, to see a Perfect Circle concert uh, one night. And we went there and we came back and it was a late night, but it wasn't undoable. So maybe we can get out to Raleigh, North Carolina without too much trouble. We'll see. I'd like to. All right, and I want to sign off today thanking you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book, add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me, my Ryan S. Rogers at gmail.com. 
If you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash and tear down and gush over and chit-chat about any part of the book. Or also not the book, all you'd like. Well, for mostly one hour, anyhow. Jurassic Podcast is part of the Spring Chicken's banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chicken's funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the Infantry, and the worst of them all, the King Street Capers. And you can find links to all of that baggage in the show notes by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com. We can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers. Or me, I'm on Twitter at RogersRyan22. Thank you dearly for tuning in to the Jurassic Park cast. The Jurassic Park podcast, where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. Until next time.